0: Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you have prepared us through the worship and through the communion word to remember that every word that is spoken to us from the scriptures comes out of your heart, overflowing with love for people, that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross, that he would absorb every sin so that we would be able to live right lives in holiness before you. God, we thank you that as we study the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the churches, God, we thank you for the word that it is to us today to prepare us to keep being strong in the faith as we wait on the return of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, Lord, help us to have heads to hear understanding in our hearts to be able to absorb your word and receive it today by the power of your holy spirit we pray in jesus name and everyone says amen well this is week four week four of a seven week series we're in from revelation a letter to the churches we've been talking about seven helps to keep this church and every church healthy until Jesus Christ comes again. And so today we come to Jesus' letter to the church at Thyatira. We're going to have a look at our video clip and then we'll come back and preach the message.
1: The ancient city of Thyatira became part of the Roman Republic in 133 BC, and was later considered one of the major cities in Asia province. Today, most of ancient Thyatira is located beneath the modern city of Akisar. (music) Thyatira is mentioned in both Acts and Revelation as being the hometown of Lydia, and later one of the main churches of Asia Minor. Paul may have visited Thyatira and brought the gospel here during his final journey through Asia province. Archaeology hasn't revealed much about Thyatira from New Testament times. Brief excavations here have uncovered this Roman road and part of a public building. Investigations at the site have also revealed several inscriptions and coins. Apparently, many people here worshipped the Greek gods of Zeus, Artemis, and Apollo. Inscriptions found here also indicate that Thyatira was known for many trade guilds, including leather, bronze, pottery, wool, linen, and dyes. First century Thyatira was primarily a pagan city like so many others in the Roman Empire. But the letter to the church here does contain a specific warning about a false, self-proclaimed prophetess that John calls Jezebel. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Revelation 2, 18-25 It's likely that Jezebel was an allusion to the evil Phoenician queen of ancient Israel, who was associated with harlotry and witchcraft and served as a warning against the pagan practices that this prophetess was trying to teach some of the members of the church here.
0: All righty, let's get into it. The title of uh, today's message, the tolerant church in Thyatira. And we're going to look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through to 29. This is the longest message that Christ writes to his church. And so let's begin with Christ and his commendation to the church. Point one this morning. And he begins in verse 18. If you've got your Bibles there or you're following along on the screen, to the angel of the church in Thyatira writes If we pull down our map, we can see we continue on this circular route. Uh, Thyatira is around about 60 kilometres. Have you noticed there's pretty much an even space between each and every one of these towns? Thyatira means sacrifice of labour. Think of this town much like the maybe the steel towns of Newcastle and Wyala. Maybe some of the manufacturing towns that we have here in uh, Victoria. Or, or uh, even Bendigo as we think about the gold and the pottery that we have here. This was a working class town. It was a union town. No belonging to the union, no jobby. They were having common meals as these trade unions. What they used to do was they would go up to the temple and they would sacrifice this food to idols. And of course, you know, if you've been part of this series, you had to bow down. You had to pay homage to the idol in order to eat, in order to have your job. And of course, in the temple where all of this was going on, it would lead to drunkenness and debauchery. There'd be all sorts of sexual immorality That was taking place. Should Christians be involved in this sort of behaviour? It was a challenge to the church then and even for some of us today in the environments upon which we work and live in, the expectation for us is quite often to be involved in idol worship. What to do? It's not always easy sometimes, is it? We think we would always make the, the right decision, but sometimes we, we waver. It goes on and it says, these are the words of the Son of God. And this is the first and only time in these letters that Christ's name is used. He actually declares himself to be the Son of God to make a definitive statement about his deity and therefore his authority in able to be able to speak to people in this way. You see, he was coming against this demonic authority that was taking rise within the church. Colossians, of course, contains probably the strongest Christological statement about Jesus Christ being the Son of God. In Colossians 1 verse 15, it says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You see, whenever you uh, come to other people you, looking to usurp authority, whenever you uh, are met with false teachers, the first thing they try to do is denounce or deny the deity of Jesus as the Son of God. They don't care if he has prominence, but he cannot have preeminence. He can be a way, but he cannot be the way. So image here, it actually means that all of the characteristics of God that we see are contained within the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was 100% God, 100% man, 100% of the time. How could that possibly be? because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So he entered the world very much different than you and I. These two natures working together simultaneously, we call the hypostatic union. So God formed his own union. And every other truth of Christianity grows out of this one truth. That's why when anybody wants to destroy the truth about Jesus, the whole idea of him being God and man is attacked. We know uh, from our Greek that Jesus is homoousius. It means that he is the same substance as God. You cannot be a Christian without believing that he is homoousius. Other people, false teachers... Like our friends the Mormons, will teach that he is Homo Iousius. Just one letter different, but what it does is he is not the same substance as God. He is only of similar substance. See how we're happy to have him, but not for him to be preeminent. The Greek word, therefore, image is uh, econ. That's where we get that word icon. Everybody's got a computer on your desktop. You've got these little icons that represent something, don't they? Well, what it's saying here in this culture, image was a stamp that made an exact representation of what it was to be. So Jesus, understand, is the visible representation of the invisible God. Jesus is God with skin on. The Jehovah Witnesses, they believe that Jesus was a created being and therefore not God. If you've ever had uh, one of them knock on your door, this is one of the verses that they will approach you with. It says there, He is the firstborn over all creation. Well, you see, if he was born, then that means he is created by God, and therefore he can't be God, can he? But of course, there's always a little bit of a different nuance when it comes between English and Greek. Firstborn actually means to be the heir, the owner the Supreme One over all things. And of course, you've only got to look at the next seven words. It says, For by Him all things were created. Things in heaven and earth, invisible and invisible, thrones and powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. I always uh, like to think of Him as being God, the gorilla glue who holds the whole universe together. It's one of those ones, you know, when uh, especially young people are quite anxious today around what is happening. You know, this planet is, is being destroyed. But the reality is that if God created it, it belongs to him. Jesus is the heir of all of those things, including his father's deity. So he is the one who actually holds it all together. It will not go into chaos and be destroyed as long as Christ is on his throne. So he's establishing his authority here by his divinity. Then reading on, we've got this description of the Son of God saying this, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. All week I've been thinking, guys, if you're married, has your wife ever given you the look Hey, I'll tell you what I've had the look. I should be. Uh, I could die a thousand deaths. I've had that many looks. Usually on a Sunday, actually, from the stage it's usually when I get most of them. But that's nothing compared to the look that Christ will give you. He sees all things. The symbolism here is that he, it, His eyes. He sees into the darkest recesses of everything that goes on in our lives. And his feet, like this burnished bronze, is this idea that he is walking through the church today in judgment over what he sees. You know, whenever I think of uh, the feet of Jesus, I always think of those feet that walked the dusty streets of Galilee. Yeah? I always imagine those. I imagine the feet that walked on water. And they are the same feet that Ephesians uh, 1.22 says that God has placed all things under his feet. And when I think of that, it reminds me that as long as I'm walking with Jesus, my life is heading in the right direction. So verse 19 of Revelation 2. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. And isn't the way he's been talking to the church actually the same all the way through, isn't it? And that you are doing more than you did at first. So he keeps reminding the church, and you can take that however you like, depending on how you're living your life, isn't it? I know your deeds. I know what you're up to. I'm trying not to point to anybody. I know what you're up to. You can feel like, ooh. But you know, the other thing too is that he walks with us and he knows us. And it means that he can guide and protect us and we can have a positive relationship with him because we know where our life is going. You know, someone said character is how you behave when no one else is watching. So we can view this positively. I don't think when he talks about doing more that he's actually commending them because they've got a crowded church calendar. What he's saying here is that in the midst of these churches who have suffered nothing but trial and persecution, you know they're continually being uh, uh, told to bow down to immorality and, and idol worship. And he's actually saying here, but you know what? You guys are holding the ground. You guys are doing more. You're stronger than you ever were before. And I think you know that that's something that even for us as a church that that I believe that Christ would commend us for we continue to stand the ground in the midst of so many others that are looking to water down the Word of God we're going to continue to stand on the Word of God we're going to continue to make sure that people can present their lives before uh, God on that day clean and pure and right before him of course they all interrelate don't they if we are loving of one another we'll be serving and if we continue to be faithful to one another we'll continue to persevere and encourage one another on in the faith you know faith is like a, a muscle isn't it I think Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith you cannot please God. So we've got to exercise our faith, otherwise our faith becomes weak. And when we have a weak faith, then we'll make adjustments to the world and not into God's word. And so we've got to make sure that we're exercising our faith each day. Stepping out, believing, trusting. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know the one who holds tomorrow in his hand. We just talked about that. So we can confidently move forward in our faith. But then, after he commends the church, Christ condemns the church. We've talked about this if you haven't been here. It's a pattern that he continues to unfold week after week through his letters. Revelation 2.20 Nevertheless, he says, I have this against you. In other words, listen up, you better pay attention. If you've ever been on a plane, you know, when the pilot comes on and he says, uh, fasten your seatbelts, we're about to hit a little turbulence. This is what Jesus is saying here. Because Jesus is not happy. You tolerate, you pardon the preaching of that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a self-professed prophet. Notice Everybody in the church would have known exactly who he was talking about. And it's the Lord who holds the church responsible for tolerating the teaching of this self-proclaimed prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and to eating food sacrificed to idols. You know, to tolerate something is to get comfortable was something that should have made you feel very uncomfortable. Somehow they'd allowed this ungodly woman, this satanic influence, to rise into this position of power and authority within the church. Now let me say this. While some people disagree with women teaching in authority in the church, I want you to know this wasn't Jesus' problem. This wasn't Jesus' problem. You know, when I think about the harsh treatment that Jesus gives to the church and the commands that he makes in these seven letters to the church, wouldn't it be a great time for him to just lay down the law and say, this is what I accept and this is what I disagree with? Wouldn't it be a good time for him to end the debate? Well, I think he actually just did. Sometimes we don't want women to be in authority and teaching within the life of the church. But that is not the issue that Jesus has here. The issue that he has. And of course, if you need a male to be in authority in the church, remember the only person who owns this church is Jesus Christ. He is the head, he is the male in authority. All the rest of us are part of the body. Part of the issue becomes that we like to have this hierarchical system, uh, but we are the priesthood of all believers. We all have different gifts and talents and abilities and different callings by God. You see, it wasn't that she was the wrong sex. But her teaching on sex was wrong. That's the issue that comes to the fore here. And of course, you know, we've had many, many a discussion and my experience tells me that men in authority in the church are usually the problem with immorality. Very difficult to find it the other way around. So she is a real woman with an unreal name. And God always names people, doesn't he, according to their character. You've noticed that through the scriptures, he will change people's names as their character is revealed. So he chooses the most vilest, the most evil woman in the Old Testament. It's an allusion to uh, when uh, uh, Jezebel came on the scene as the wife of Ahab, who was the king of Israel. It's mentioned first in uh, 1 Kings 16. The short version simply is that Jezebel, she was the daughter of a pagan king, Ethbaal. They worshipped Baal. Baal was a fertility god. It was a very sensual and sexual uh, uh, um, uh, idolatry that they invested in. So she marries the king. And suddenly she's got the king's ear And before long, they've got 800 false prophets of Baal. They're trying to kill uh, Elijah. She killed Naboth for his vineyard. She was a ruthless and evil and wicked woman who uh, continued. I think she was a missionary of Baal in order to lead the nation away from God and his word. And so that's why Jesus selects her name as this dominant woman in Thyatira. According to uh, the scriptures, uh, she was pushed out the uh, window of her palace. Her body crumpled on the ground. The dogs came and ate her and licked up her blood. So the insinuation in Revelation here is that this woman, this Jezebel, she had an evil spirit and she was leading people away from God's word. You might have heard of that, a Jezebel spirit, yes? Someone who is crafty and cunning seductive and subtle. She has this sort of demonic nature. It's driven by this sexual appetite and she will be destructive and unrepentant in churches, in marriages and in people's lives. And so in the Old Testament and the New, it instructs us very, very clearly that we are not to be unequally yoked. We're not to be joined together. Ahab was the king of Israel, and he brought in this pagan wife who led the whole nation away from God. The Bible says that this king did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than all the others. So anybody who's out there who's thinking about dating, thinking about getting married, thinking about who you're going to have that life partner with, it's really important that you make sure that you are not unequally yoked. It's a term for animals, isn't it? You know, out in the farm they wear a yoke and they, two ox will go together and they'll go in the same direction but if you yoke a donkey with an ox it's going to be stubborn it's going to pull in a different direction there's not going to be a consensus of what's to be achieved and then in 2 Corinthians uh, 6 it explains do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial was the, the name used for Satan, the absolute archenemy of God. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? So it's pretty clear that Christ is making this... Example of destructive relationships, interfaith relationships. We don't generally think of it like that, do we? I hope if you're a Christian here this morning, you're not uh, hoping to marry a a Muslim or a Hindu or a a Buddhist. And yet why is it that we would think that it would be all right to marry an atheist? Because they're worshipping at their own temple. They've got their own gods upon which they worship. Jesus is our leader, the devil is theirs. The Bible says, What is light and darkness? Jesus, the devil, heaven and hell have in common. The answer to that is nothing. So, Jezebel, she became this symbol of a seductive form of evil that actually promoted idolatry, that actually encouraged and rewarded sexual immorality. And of course, and would have to be Einstein to figure out that this sort of toxic mix isn't going to work well for individuals. It's not going to work well for marriages. It's not going to work well in a nation. And it's certainly not going to work well for the church. So how did this woman come to power like this in Thyatira? Maybe she was related to someone who was in authority in the church. Maybe her brother or her dad was, was somebody up in the church and she was able to get this influence happening. She gained credibility. I imagine she had a powerful personality, a persuasive speech, a seductive smile. I imagine uh, she would have been easy on the eye. What? What she say? I don't know. I don't care. That's the way it is when people are easy on the eye, isn't it? It can lull us into this false sense of security. She was dangerous, church. Maybe uh, that's why Jesus says, one day you're going to have to look in my eyes, than my gazing in hers. So with Jezebel, you could have it all, church. You could have salvation and jesus you could have heaven you can have gluttony and greed you can have guilt-free sex and fellowship with the world all that under the guise of being a good christian and lots of people want to go to the church of saint jezebel don't they live all the way you want and do anything you want and everything will be fine it worked for jezebel the first one and it worked for the second one but the church's sin Was simply in not dealing with the situation. The church's sin was simply not dealing with the situation. People knew what was going on, but they didn't deal with it. You see, it's a dangerous thing, isn't it? People do have the gift of prophecy, it's a spiritual gift. But how do you know what they're saying is correct? You know, It's one thing for me to stand up here this morning and say Jesus says in his word There it is It's a whole other thing for me to stand up here and say God Almighty told me What am I saying? I speak the very words of God You should listen to me How do you know if what I say is true and accurate and right? How do you know if, if you should be doing what I'm saying? It has to line up, doesn't it? With the word of God Look at verse 21. Jesus says, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. We quite often see that, don't we? Uh, When there's certain situations and circumstances when we have that opportunity to change, because God has given us free will, we will actually buck against that. But in here we find the hope of the gospel. In here we find the hope of the gospel. It is simply if you are willing. doesn't matter what you've done in your past. God loves you. Christ came and died for every one of those things that we've ever done wrong. If you are willing, today the slate can be wiped clean. If you are willing, you can start again. If you are willing, you can receive forgiveness. Yes, there might be consequences of the things that you have done. Nobody's going to forego that. But what it means is that (sighs) that weight... When weighing in your heart, you can be set free. See, you can have Jezebel or you can have Jesus, but you can't have both. If you want to follow Jesus, you've got to turn your back on Jezebel. In James chapter 3, verse 9, it says this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Back in uh, 1535, a guy by the name of uh, Miles Cloverdale, he uh, translated uh, the first uh, scriptures into English. And when he came to this word that we have today, patience, it's the word macrothermos in the Greek. And uh, he invented a new English word and it simply is long-suffering. Macro means uh, slow, uh, yes, or long. And thermos is to heat up. And so when you think about God being patient, understand he is, he is slow to anger. He has a long fuse and a short memory. But we also have to remember that God's patience is limited. You might have today, but you might not have tomorrow. So always remember this. When life's going well when you're doing some things and you don't think that Christ sees those or even cares about what you're up to. Maybe you even feel like he's blessing you. It could simply be that he is just giving you the time to repent. You know, uh, legal experts uh, will tell us that uh, theoretically, if you've uh, uh, been involved in a crime, you could have five ways that you would not be held guilty for that crime. But in God's judgment, there is no loopholes. Judgment can be delayed, it can be denied, but it cannot be derailed so in verse 22 he says this so i will cast her on a bed of suffering and i will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways so intense suffering will ultimately be the punishment if we don't live according to god's word can you see the sarcasm here he's really saying you people like to lie on beds i'll give you a bed to lie on one that will be Held in suffering. Meaning, have you, have you heard that saying, uh, you've made your bed? My dad used to say this to me all the time. I'd, I'd love to have a little list of how many times I've quoted my dad from this stage. Andrew, you've made your bed. What do you mean? I never made a bed in my life. There's going to be consequences, son. There's going to be consequences. And this is what he says in verse 23. I will strike her children dead. Not her literal children. Remember, we are all children of God if we're Christian. Better just add that in. But if you're not a Christian, you're a child of the devil. That's what the Bible says. If you haven't quite pieced that together. You're either for him or you are against him. Doing the devil's work. It's really important that we understand that Jesus says what he means here. And he means what he says. He says, listen, I might even have to use the chastisement of death if these people don't repent of this false teaching. Because this is what he says next. Then, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and will repay each of you according to your deeds. So one piece of good news is that there is always time for you to repent. Repent. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, it says this. There should not even be a hint, not a whiff. No one should get a sense of, oh, there's something, there's something smelly about what's going on here, of sexual sin among you. Don't do anything unclean. And do not always want more and more. Things like that are not what God's holy people should do. So if you want to live in victory, it's important that you live your life in purity. I'd love to be able to water down God's Word sometimes. I'd love to be able to just say, look, you know, God loves you and it's all right and as long as you you'll be fine. But I think it's important to make a strong stand so that the church will be strong as we move in to waiting on Christ's return. Be sure, whatever sin it is we commit your sins will be found out. Alan Redpath in Victorious Christian Living, he writes this, I trust that the Holy Spirit is going to write this lesson deeply on your hearts. Where one member of the local fellowship is guilty before God of sin, the verdict from heaven is, my people have sinned. Sometimes uh, people will sort of say, well, you know, look, Andrew, it's up to me. You know, my sins, they don't affect anybody else. Well, we say we always hurt the ones we love. I don't know anybody who has, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, who has perpetrated adultery upon their family, that it hasn't had ramifications for kids as they grow up and continue to think about what does that sort of relationship look like. You know, so often we talk in the negative terms, don't we? You know? You can feel like this could be a really negative, this is a bit of a downer, I don't know what. I'm. We've got to remember that Christ speaks positively. It's not about what we're against this morning, it's about what we're for. You know, I am for great sex within the covenant of marriage. That is exactly what God upholds. I am for, God says, the responsibility of respecting relationships. I'm for, God says, honouring one another in holiness. He is for agape love, that unconditional commitment to one another, not eros. Eros is this sexual relationship that we want with anyone, anywhere we can get it. Apple farmers will tell you, you can have a whole barrel of apples, but just one rotten apple in the barrel releases this toxic gas and it actually corrupts all of the good apples. We don't want to end up having to sit in church in a hazmat suit, do we? As we're surrounded by this sort of stuff. You see, too often... Today, people adjust to the situation they find themselves in rather than adjusting the situation to God's Word. Too often we adjust to the situation, but the situation's always changing, isn't it? Circumstances in life are always changing, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the fact remains today, if we lower our standards in a few things, and this resonates, if we lower our standards in a few things, it becomes increasingly easier for us to lower our standards in everything. And then before we know it, remember last week we talked about, can anyone tell the difference between those in the church and those in the community? A Middle Eastern proverb said this, Once the camel puts his nose in the door of your tent, it won't be long before he's sleeping in your bed. And I'm sure this is what Jezebel would have said to people. Listen, hey, don't worry. Live how you want. Everybody else is doing it. That's a great one for today, isn't it? You see, once you forsake the judgment and authority of the Bible in your life, your beliefs and your actions and your morals, then you actually fail to be a Christian living in a Christian church. So I had this problem in the church, and Jesus condemns the church. Not for the problem. We've all got problems. None of us are perfect. We've all got stuff that we're dealing with and we're all addressing different sins within our own lives and we're all seeking God's forgiveness for the things that we have done. But failure by the church to deal with this problem and adjust to the situation is what Jesus Christ is addressing right here. We have this all the time in pastoral ministry. This is a pretty common one for us here. You see, if I don't know about something, I can't be held responsible. I'm not culpable But once I know something, and it's against God's word, then I have a responsibility before God. And we're the priesthood of all believers. So that's your responsibility as well. Quite often people will come to me looking to abdicate responsibility. Andrew, is it all right for me to do this? What are they saying? Well, you see, he told me it was all right. It's his fault. It's not mine. And we love that. And people like us just to remain quiet. Because then that means in our quietness, we're actually condoning what's going on. Somebody says something to you, Mark, why are you doing this? Sorry to point you out, Mark, but you're a brother, okay? And you go, wow, nobody in the church said anything about it. So by not saying anything, he's then saying, what I'm doing is right, right? We cannot adjust to every situation. We've got to make sure that we are staying tight on the Word of God. So here's what we ought to do about it. Christ corrects the church. Verses 24 and 25. He addresses the faithful followers. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called dark secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. What is it we've got? The Word of God. We've got the Scriptures. Hey, listen. Lean in a little bit. Just lean in a bit. We all love a secret, don't we? Hey? Oh, it makes our ears tingle. What's he going to say? What are these secret things? I've been in church long enough. I I know some people love to get some sort of obscure thing and bring it to the... Oh, look what I've discovered. Look what I've found out. The, The dark secrets here that we're really talking about is, you know, we can look into God's Word and we can elevate something that's evil and make it good. We can take something that's wrong and make it right. All of a sudden, sin is disguised as acceptable. You know, as far as I'm concerned, I think the deepest thing that we can ever do as Christians is just simply obey the greatest commandment with the great commission. Yeah? Love God. Love your neighbour. Tell your neighbour God loves them, and that'll keep you busy till I get back, Jesus says. So finally, Christ concludes to the church with his promise. Verses 26 to 28. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end... I will give authority. There it is. That's why he comes all the way through. Authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. Remember uh, Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me, it's given to you now. Go. You know, in the Old Testament, a king would hold the scepter and it meant that he held the power of your life and death in his hand. If he withheld the scepter, but Jesus is saying, I hold that scepter and I hold it out to you and I give you life to those who are being faithful when I return. When I return, he's saying, you're going to reign with me me in victory. That's a great promise, isn't it? But then he also says this, I will also give that one the morning star a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy Balaam in Numbers 24 17 said this a star shall come forth from Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel and then we move all the way to Revelation twenty-two sixteen, 16 and Jesus fulfills it he says I Jesus am the bright morning star The morning star and the bright morning star. Have you ever noticed this? You know, uh, uh, the devil is an angel of light. Jesus is the light of the world. Last week, we looked at how the devil's like a roaring lion. And Jesus is the alpha lion who has destroyed him. And here we've got this morning star. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I am the bright morning star. Morning star, of course, is a reference to the devil. In Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. So the devil brings about this darkness in the world when he was cast down. But we've got this victory, this bright morning star. The morning star, of course, if you're a bit of an astronomer, uh, you know it's all about Venus, isn't it? It appears in the sky around about 4 a.m. in the western sky. Actually, ancient astronomers uh, thought it was a star, but of course today we know it as a planet, And so Jesus refers to him as this bright morning star. It's representative of there is a new day about to dawn. There is new hope coming. Hang on. Jesus is on his way. It indicates that something better is coming. You know, at four o'clock in the morning, you've been up at four o'clock in the morning? At four o'clock in the morning, a day is about to dawn. The birds begin to sing the sun begins to rise, and there's something about to happen. And this is what it is with the bright morning star. It's this idea, you know, from Malachi 4 verse 2, it says the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And it's that idea, those wings are the rays of sunlight that will go across the planet, and that all will see that Christ has come, and we're going to reign with him in righteousness The idea is that Jesus Christ is going to come in glory. One day the sun will dawn. And so our idea now is to keep our lives orbiting around the sun so that we keep reflecting his light onto the planet so that it doesn't become a darkened place with no hope in the future. We're to shine that darkness into the world We're to shine that light into the darkness until Christ comes again. Final verse. Hear as ears to hear. Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you stand with me this morning?